0: Our latest clinical review on bmj.com looks at the frequently asked questions in infectious mononucleosis. Infectious mononucleosis or IM is commonly seen in the community and hospital setting. Patients usually present with a sore throat and for many physicians the diagnosis can be quite difficult to differentiate. The terms Epsom bar virus or EBV and infectious mononucleosis are often go hand in hand, but we're going to hear today from two of the authors of our latest review about how to make the diagnosis a little bit easier, hopefully. I'm Emma Parrish, Editorial Registrar at the BMJ, and I'm joined by Paul Lennon, a Specialist Registrar in ENT, and Michael Crotty, a General Practitioner. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. So, just to start, perhaps it would be helpful if you could define for us what is infectious mononucleosis and what causes it. Michael.
1: Uh, so, uh, infectious mononucleosis is something that's not uncommonly seen in um, both general practice and the hospital. Um, it can be defined as a, a non-genetic syndrome, defined by uh, a classical triad of uh, fever, pharyngitis and usually uh, cervical lymphadenopathy, uh, and um, lymphocytosis is something that's also seen. Um, infectious mononucleosis is caused by EBV virus in 90% of cases. Um, and this is something that, that we see quite commonly. Obviously, it's, it's something that needs to be differentiated from other causes of sore throat, such as um, viral pharyngitis and bacterial tonsillitis, uh, because this would have implications in, in treatment um, and long-term prognosis.
0: So you mentioned there that it's important to be able to differentiate the causes from one another. How does it differ from from the normal sore throat that someone might present to the GP with?
1: So, with with infectious mononucleosis, um, it can be thought to account for about as little as one percent of patients that present to a doctor with a sore throat. Um, But obviously, um, the treatment is going to be is going to be a little bit different. Um, The initial um, prodromal symptoms like fever, chills, malaise, obviously, are quite nonspecific and are difficult to differentiate from, you know, a viral viral pharyngitis or early bacterial tonsillitis Uh, if somebody has the the classic badge of the fever pharyngitis and the cervical lymphadenopathy um you know the we have to have it high on our uh, differential diagnosis uh, one of the the, the good clinical um, signs to note in, in infectious mononucleosis is, with lymphadenopathy is that the lymphadenopathy is uh, seen in both the anterior and posterior triangles of the neck, which can help distinguish it from bacterial tonsillitis, which is generally more seen in the um, Upper anterior cervical chain uh, lymphadenopathy, uh, and 98% of patients with infectious mononucleosis will have the the classical triad um, of symptoms. Now, other um, when we're examining patients, other common physical signs that we would sometimes see uh, would include um, uh, palatal petechiae. Um, you know, a lot of people would know about splenomegaly, hepatomegaly. Less commonly, um, some patients can be jaundiced. Um, and if we are um, looking for a definitive diagnosis if if on clinical grounds there's any question or if we want to just confirm the diagnosis, um, that can be done with, um, uh, with blood markers. Um, so commonly people would have a full blood count checked, uh, which sh- would show lymphocytosis and particularly uh, um, atypical lymphocytes. Uh, and also um, a, a monospot or heterophile antibody test can be done um, to confirm the diagnosis. Now, we need to take care with those tests because with the heterophile antibody test, um, 25% of cases uh, will be negative in the first week um, of infection. So you may get a falsely negative test. So it may need to be repeated um, if if the diagnosis still seems likely.
0: Okay. And... That's, you obviously mentioned there about about diagnosing and and sometimes there's a need to have a definitive diagnosis. Are there groups of people for whom that's more important than others, or how how do you decide which groups of people need to be given a definitive diagnosis?
1: Yeah, so the the vast majority, ninety um, percent of infectious mononucleosis, as I mentioned, is caused by Epstein Barr virus. But in certain groups of um, patients, uh, other viruses such as um, cytomegalovirus, um, HIV. uh, In certain groups of patients, that can be important. And sometimes we want to look specifically to see, is this Epstein-Barr virus or is it a different cause? So particularly in cases where somebody is pregnant, which obviously uh, infection is going to have um, implications for developing fetus, uh, or in high-risk groups such as patients with, with HIV, or immunocompromised patients, um, then we we sometimes would want to clarify whether this is Epstein Barr, or certainly confirm the diagnosis and, and clarify the cause of agent.
0: Great, and if people have been diagnosed, you've you know they've come, they've got the classical triad, you're happy with the the diagnosis, and you've maybe done the definitive test. What can someone expect, ongoing from after they've had that diagnosis made?
1: Uh, So as far as symptoms, um, usually uh, the the incubation period for... EBV is about four to seven weeks, um, and 70% of um, adolescents or adults who contract EBV will develop um, clinical infectious mononucleosis. The symptoms um, tend to resolve over about a two to four week period, but it's not uncommon um, to see a sore throat even at a month um, after um, start of symptoms. So 20% of patients still have ongoing sore throat after, after a month.
0: Yeah and we've obviously we've got um, Paul with us as well who's a a registrar in ENT so there there must be some cases where the management of patients with um, infectious mononucleosis is not always able to be within the community setting so what times might you know I don't know if you want to come in on this Paul but when might people need to be seen by your services or are there occasions where that happened?
2: Yeah, I think um, normally we see patients who are probably on the more severe end of things. We see patients where they often present an, a simple enough uh, thing for us is if they simply can't swallow water and they can't swallow their own saliva, then they need to be admitted for uh, intravenous antibiotics. Worse cases then where they have complications from either an upper airway tract obstruction, uh, a bad hepatitis, or any complications from uh, infectious mononucleosis. Uh, they may be managed by VNT service or uh, and sometimes infectious diseases, depending on the hospital. From the point of view of management, obviously, in those high-risk patients, you want to outrule uh, things like HIV and uh, toxoplasmosis, CMV, um, especially in pregnancy. Um, but most of the management then is still supportive. It's still treating uh, with rest, hydration, analgesia, antipyretics. And obviously in hospital, we can give intravenous fluid and uh, they do well.
0: You mentioned there about complications. Yeah. Um, What are the kind of complications we need to be thinking about in someone who has this diagnosis?
2: The common complications and um, I I suppose the outside there, the pharyngitis, and just uh, from that point of view, uh, one of the most common would be splenomegaly. That doesn't seem to occur in all uh, patients, but... Uh, may not be elicited in all patients if the spleen is large and it 's uh, down below the uh, protective ribs, then uh, especially in young adults. this is normally a, uh, uh, an infection that is seen in young adults who will be playing a lot of sports if they do get a an injury there you can have a ruptured spleen, and that would be a major uh, complication It can actually happen even without any traumatic event. Um, From the point of view of Epstein-Barr virus, as a virus, there's been multiple uh, different reports of lots of uh, varied complications um, going from uh, meningitis to uh, pericarditis. Uh, I would have a a low threshold of um, uh, seeking further help.
0: Great. And uh, how common is splenic rupture?
2: Uh, it, it's extremely rare. Um, it's uh, less than 1% of patients, but I suppose it's one of the most feared uh, ones, the most, uh, most common ones. And I think most um, general practitioners will be fully aware of that. But it's just to be aware that it can happen even spontaneously as well.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned there about young people playing sports and, uh, you know, keen to get back to those activities What is the kind of guidance around when they can return to to sports and those activities after having had a diagnosis?
2: Um, There's been a good few papers on this trying to look at uh, when the spleen spleen comes back to normal. Um, In in everybody around uh, up to about two weeks, the spleen will have increased in size and then it slowly decreases over the next couple of weeks. Um, so we would say at least four weeks and if, the, if it was somebody who was an athlete who had a, a big match coming up or something and they desperately wanted to get back, an ultrasound at that time uh, could be done uh, and to make sure that the spleen had gone back to normal. Um, that's been done in uh, in some uh, institutions and then they do it a weekly ultrasound to make sure that it's back to normal before they're left back but uh, four to six weeks would be the general um, it seems to be what's come out for most of the papers uh, but at least four is what I would say.
0: Great great and one of the really interesting parts of the review is that you go on to answer some of the questions that come up about the links between infectious mononucleosis and other conditions. Um, perhaps if we can speak about chronic fatigue syndrome first of all what what is the the link there and what is recommended in terms of speaking to patients about this
2: i i think uh, that's one thing about infectious mono it's it's probably fairly widely known in the community um and and uh, people often say oh you're definitely you'll be very tired for a long time after having that you'll be fatigued to actually i suppose meet the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome, that's severe fatigue, that's disabling, uh, and it's going on without any other cause for six months, uh, and it's severely impairing. Uh, some studies have found that patients after infectious mononucleosis can happen around 10% of patients, uh, but a very large study of over 1,300 patients found did not find that any patient met that criteria. So there, there is a lot of debate there between people who think that infectious mononucleosis is a major cause for chronic fatigue, and other people who think that, you know, that this is a multifactorial thing uh, that it may be caused by many different uh, infections, uh, and also that the patients are more likely to improve and get less fatigue if they are encouraged to get up, uh, walk around, not to be told that this is something that you need to lie in bed for two or three weeks, For that you'd actually be better off um, getting up and moving around and trying to get back, back to yourself. Those patients seem to do better. Um, and it seems to be more of a, 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 const, a constellation of pathophysiologi- pathophysiological causes uh, that causes um, chronic fatigue rather than something directly related to infectious mononucleosis.
0: Great, right. thank you. And just going on towards um speaking about multiple sclerosis, which is mentioned in the review, is obviously something that, that's quite concerning for, for anyone uh, reading and may be diagnosed with it. What is the the relationship there?
2: Again, uh, infectious mononucleosis has been implicated in uh, the etiology of um, of uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, there's been some interesting stories on that that have shown that practically, uh, practically everybody who has had multiple sclerosis has Epstein-Barr as evidence of Epstein-Barr infection. But then again, most people in the community will have some Epstein-Barr infection. Um some studies have shown that it's not just the epstein bar, that it's it's infectious mononucleosis and that um that the rates of the people who get MS have had infectious mononucleosis rather than EBV as a child. Um so that's that's led some people to say that you know if, if children are either exposed to when uh infectious are Uh, Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, Epstein-Barr virus as a child is um, a very different disease than uh, infectious mononucleosis, a mild uh, fever uh, that usually doesn't go into causing the syndrome of infectious mononucleosis. Um, And they say that this or even a vaccine against Epstein-Barr could actually prevent uh, uh, multiple sclerosis, but that's all quite theoretical. Uh, and going on at the basis of a couple of studies that have shown greater uh, incidence of multiple sclerosis in those who've had infectious mononucleosis rather than just Epstein-Barr.
0: Okay. And those are obviously areas where there's still some debate and contention about whether mm. there's a, a causal relationship there. But are there any conditions where we know there is a clear link from infectious mononucleosis?
2: Again, that's a difficult thing that's even in the literature. It's often difficult to differentiate between Epstein-Barr virus and uh, infectious mononucleosis. So it's difficult to say that even there's a a number of malignancies that are clearly linked to Epstein-Barr virus, such as Burkitt's lymphoma and nasopharyngeal carcinoma. But a number of Scandinavian studies have shown and some British studies have shown that they've linked uh, monospot-positive infectious mononucleosis with higher rates of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um again the, the the proof for this isn't uh it's not level 1 evidence but uh it is concerning uh that this might there may be a link between disinfection that does uh, seem to attack the lymphatic system and then uh lymphatic malignancies.
0: Yeah. So if someone's diagnosed at the at the beginning of this with infectious mononucleosis what would be the best way to approach you know, telling them about the, the outcomes, obviously there's a lot of information within the review um, talking about the possible relationships. But as a patient coming into to clinic or to see you in a, a GP surgery, what would be kind of what you'd want to say to them at that point?
1: Uh, so as far as advising a patient, um, I think it's important to to inform patients that, um, you know, Epstein-Barr virus is a very, very common virus, and 90% of adults will show uh, previous um, exposure um, to Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, infectious mononucleosis, again, is more common if somebody is exposed to Epstein-Barr virus in their adolescence or adult, uh, rather than, as Paul said previously, um, if somebody becomes Um, in contact with epstein Barr as a child, they're less likely to get the clinical syndrome of infectious mononucleosis. I suppose in in the short term, um, reassuring the patient that um, in the majority of cases... Uh, symptoms usually settle um, with conservative management um, within a two to four week period and for the vast majority of patients there isn't uh, any long-term sequelae. Um, it would be important, you know, the the research is still ongoing as far as kind of long-term implications um, but, you know, I think to inform the patient that at the moment um, we don't know, uh, you know, there hasn't been a proven causal effect um, from infectious mononucleosis, uh, you know, know with multiple sclerosis um and, and other you know some other conditions uh, particularly chronic fatigue i think is one that definitely um worries patients and, and this is one that is um there's a lot of concern in the community about uh, so just reassuring them um as paul previously said you know a brief intervention when they when they attend you to to explain to them that you know although they need to rest and take plenty of fluids and analgesia antipyretics and um, they also need to you know mobilize as as soon as they can and not not spend long periods of time um, in bed. And I think if we explain that early in the course of the disease, um, you know, studies have suggested that the outcome for those patients is is better. Um, Again, I think when the patient arrives with a sore throat to a GP's practice, you know, some patients may automatically think they need an antibiotic for what they presume is a bacterial tonsillitis. So just to to kind of explore with them um, the differences between bacterial of tonsillitis, viral pharyngitis and um, infectious mononucleosis uh, and why, you know, antibiotics or other treatments may not be given, um, you know, just to, to educate the patient a little bit um, to, to improve their outcome.
0: And really, um, what I was just going to ask now is about the main messages from the review that you would like readers to take away or listeners to take away from the podcast. What would be the kind of take home message?
2: Um I suppose the, 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 the couple of things that infectious mononucleosis is not necessarily Epstein Barr virus and I always have that in the back of your mind that if it's a high risk patient, uh high risk from HIV point of view, high risk from a pregnancy point of view, then uh you should you should go ahead and order more investigations. Um, otherwise you know if they need hospital treatments then the, they should be referred if they can't uh drink unfortunately there's no good um no good antiviral treatment uh, there's some um, there may be some use from uh, other um, antibiotics but this is uh none of this is proven from the point of view of steroids are useful if there is an airway uh crisis. Uh, that may uh, eliminate the need for a tracheostomy, uh, but their day-to-day use has not been shown to be um, not been shown to be beneficial to patients. Um, and although there is links between chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple sclerosis, um, certain malignancies, these are all uh, associations. There nothing has actually been proven. Uh, and that you know that, that basically a lot of, you know, of what if a patient is coming and haven't read up uh, a lot on infectious mononucleosis uh, that uh, allaying the patient's fear is probably going to do uh, a lot of benefit for that patient.
1: The only other thing that um, I think would be important to address with um, infectious mononucleosis is um, a lot of GPs will have experience of placing a patient on ampicillin um, or penicillin antibiotic for a sore throat and a patient developing a fine macular rash um, as a complication um, and this creates um, a lot of confusion, a lot of difficulty and patients then sometimes think that they're allergic to penicillin and will avoid it for the rest of their lives. This um, gives us another reason to make a clinical or or um, biochemical diagnosis of infectious mononucleosis, given that um, 90% of patients with IM um, will develop um, the rash when given um, penicillin or ampicillin. Um, so I think that, that could have long-term implications for the patient and their you know, um, fear about allergies.
0: You've been listening to Paul Lennon and Michael Crotty talking about the clinical review on infectious mononucleosis. The review is now available on bmj.com.